0: Grinding through deep valleys and high over mountain peaks, suffering through despair and isolation, these are feelings familiar to any elite level mountain biker. But when the physical pain is exceeded by the emotional ache of depression and anxiety, no amount of fitness can ease the torment. On the podcast today, professional mountain biker and gravel rider Kelly Catali joins us to share her lifelong struggle with depression and anxiety. She talks about the role that it played in her racing and how a like-minded coworker saved her from her worst moment. I really want to thank Kelly for sharing her story. This is a conversation that were it not for this podcast, frankly, I never would have had the opportunity to have. And so even though we're just 13 short episodes in, I just wanted to say I'm really grateful for the opportunity to do this and for Kelly's willingness to share her story. So if you're ready for the show, crank it up and let's go. Welcome to the Athlinks podcast. I am your host, Troy Bousseau, coming to you from the snow swept hills of Broomfield, Colorado. It's November 24th, 2020, and this is episode 13.
1: Hi,
0: Kelly. Hello. Good to talk to you again.
2: Likewise. Yeah. I'm excited to be here.
0: This is a little bit of a time warp right now because we haven't actually released the episode where we met. And we decided to have you back on. So we're going to be sort of flashing forward and backward and, but luckily we'll release them in sequence. So it won't be too confusing for anybody listening.
2: Perfect. Yeah. It's like the twilight zone or something.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So we have Kelly Catali back on the podcast. Just, I think you'll be separated by one episode. If I'm, if I'm remembering things correctly. Um, And if you don't mind, I'm going to tell the, so you were on um, two podcasts ago. Uh, you basically gave a race recap of your unpaved performance, the gravel race in Pennsylvania. And I threw out the idea. You did the segment race. Um, Dave called it what a regroup race. Is that how he is, as, as opposed to like the enduro timing?
2: Yeah, he liked the term regroup racing because yeah. you essentially can race at your speed and then regroup at the end of each of the segments.
0: yeah. So I had the brilliant idea, you regrouped with two other gals who ended up, You, the three of you podiumed, yes. so it would have been you and two other amazing ladies who finished one, two, three in the race, um, and I think I'd still really love to do that, but we actually, you then had the brillianter um, idea of coming back on the show and talking about uh, some of the struggles that you've had in your life and career with mental health. And I thought that uh, no better time like the present to crack that can of peanuts open and uh, (laughs) lay them all out on the table and just have this conversation. So we decided to celebrate it, get you back on and and, uh, open it up.
2: Yeah, no better time than 2020, really. That's
0: right. Absolutely. So basically, I mean, the idea here, you know, there's no secret to it. This has been, this has been a really um, tough year for a whole lot of people. Um, but there's also, I think, a changing tide in the things that, um, that we're willing to talk about. I read your blog post on the subject. I had to chuckle a little bit because I came from a family of financial planners who never speak about money. You're not allowed to talk about money. <laughs> and so I have this really weird relationship with like, you know, I mean, you know, my dad, my brother, I've got my uncle, you know, everybody's a financial planner and nobody's allowed to talk about money. Like how much do you make? How much do you save? How much, you know? And so when you were when in your article, in your blog post where you kind of talked about, and I think that's certainly generationally, people just didn't talk about certainly mental health issues. And I think the spectrum of mental health, it was sort of a binary thing. You were either... Completely, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, crazy or not. Yes. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. And so <clears throat> this is a very new journey to you talking about it. And yeah. It's not what you do is. for a living, obviously.
2: No, nope. and neither is racing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you're, I, I suspect you're pretty damn good at both of them, so... Um, yeah. So let's, let's just jump right in here. So um, we covered again, you know, we're not, we're not going to, this isn't a re re recapping of unpaved. This is a, a recapping of your life, the things that you've dealt with. There are references back to the unpaved. You did mention your broken femur come to find out. I think that maybe that was a symptom of some other behaviors that were uh, the manifestation of the things that were going on in your head. So, yeah. um, uh, I think I mean not to be. I mean, you tell the story however you would like to. The blog post talking about being a twin, talking about being a, you know, sort of, um, um, you know, kind of an alpha type, and and all of those things. So you you start us wherever you'd like to start.
2: Okay, uh, I'm not even sure where to start. I guess I will start with saying that I have one journey among many other people and it's complex and crazy in its own way. And everyone has their own story. So just because what I go through or have been through might seem extreme or have interesting tidbits about it, it doesn't mean that any other person's journey isn't more justified or Mm -hmm. equally justified to go through the same mental health kind of journey that I've been through. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that being said, I am a professional, mountain bike and gravel racer. I used to say that I dabble in gravel racing, but (laughs) I, I do really love it. And as you know me through the unpaved world, it's definitely been a fantastic avenue in the sport. I am from Massachusetts and was born and raised in New Hampshire. So I'm from the Northeast of the U.S. And I am also, in addition to being an athlete, I am also a full-time biomedical engineer. I work on medical device development. I so work for you're
0: smart consultant. and fast.
2: Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I have a hard time accepting compliments. <laughs> oh, well, you got to you
0: have to work on that. Well, you have to work on that when you're sort of an overachiever. So that makes life a little bit difficult.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It's almost like you don't want to be an overachiever. So yeah. People don't say anything. Uh, yeah. And on top of all of that, I am also a... Uh, mental health advocate and that's I think the bigger reason why I'm here today because I want to share a little bit about my story and help your listeners find another way to connect with someone who might sound like them or have someone in their life that sounds like them
0: which do you which do you prefer gravel or mountain biking
2: mountain biking for sure and why why I say for sure and now that you make me you ask why I think actually the the difference between liking either of them is not all that great. I prefer mountain biking because it's a very challenging sport, a very mm-hmm. challenging discipline. You can't tune out and it actually I think one of the really good benefits of mountain biking for me is that it requires me to be mindful. So it's almost meditative Mm. in a way, Mm. which is really, really helpful for someone like me who has my own mental health journey that I go on uh, almost daily where I have to be present and be with every root, every rock, every feature I'm riding Mm. over on my mountain bike. I have to be there and be focused or risk getting injured. and The other piece that I really love about mountain biking is it's a sport of progression. You're never perfect and you're Mm. never going to be the best at every single type of feature. At least that's my impression is I'm sure there are people who think they are the best at every feature. But for me, I know that I constantly have something to learn, which means that I constantly have opportunities to feel like I'm growing and achieving something, which is something I take a lot of pride in. And I know a lot of people feel like growth is really important for them in their life.
1: Mm,
0: that's that's curious. Do you do you opt for a hardtail or or full suspension when when the choice presents itself?
2: This is a a difficult question. I actually would say probably if I ha- could only choose one forever, it would be a hardtail. And I nice. say that because the hardtail is so versatile. And mm-hmm. I will also say that I love every single bike that I have. So it's really hard <laughs> to say I would want one over children. They're like the children. Other. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> yeah children. they're like little babies. And the the thing about the hardtail is I can go on super long adventures on that. And the, the hardtail I have is titanium. Mm. The material has a lot of give and compliance in it where it needs to. It also has a lot of stiffness in it. So when I'm... On the road or gravel roads, for example, I've done a lot of riding on my hardtail where I lock out my suspension and then it feels much like a rigid bike. And when I have the perfect kind of gravelly, mountain bike-y tires, I can go out on single track with it too and feel pretty comfortable. I've been on some pretty gnarly single track on that and felt rattled a little bit, as anyone would on a full (laughs) suspension. Uh, But it's a very versatile bike. I do love my full suspension bike, but if I had to pick only one, I guess I would say
0: hardtail. Yeah. The reason that I asked you is I switched from full suspension to a hardtail for kind of what you mentioned was I found that I was not picking lines. I was just plowing through Yes. and I I wasn't thinking enough and I wasn't building my skill enough. So I figured maybe just go do a hardtail for a year or two and then go back to full suspension after I've built up more skill and I've just fallen so in love with the feel of and and bikes are so good nowadays with lockouts and things like that you could you could certainly buy a full suspension and treat it more like a hardtail but um yeah. there's just something like that connection it's like a sports car it's like that connection to the road um i haven't i haven't i've only regretted it on one ride where i was riding with three very fast guys on full suspension and it was the it was a downhill on the downhill segments of a very dry dirt course hmm. and so i just couldn't i just I was breaking constantly where these guys were just able to kind of suck down into the road and just go with the, go in the single track. So they just, yeah. you know, I just had a hard time keeping up, but otherwise I loved, you know, I would, I would put in time on the uphills and then they would put in time on the downhills.
2: Yeah, I, I do. I am a glutton for pain. So I do mm-hmm. like climbing. It's probably some of my favorite things that I do on any ride. Yeah. And the hardtail is just generally speaking, well-suited for climbing
0: too. Cool. So. Well, enough about mountain bikes. Um, yeah. when There's you, never
2: too much about mountain bikes. <laughs> <laughs> I know
0: we could just talk for the next two hours about mountain bikes. You, um, I know you got into cycling in college and we'll get all into that. When did you become a pro? So that's a pretty short, you're not, you're not too far out of college. So um, you have a pretty short um, lifespan or career span to go from kind of like getting on your first road bike and then all of a sudden becoming a professional gravel and mountain biker
2: yeah good question i started mountain biking for fun in 2013 i believe and then missed racing and started racing tough to say yes, yes it was 2017 okay and and it was very inconsistent i wasn't training Consistently at all, it was like I'm going to go out for a fun ride, and I realized I really enjoyed it. The endurance, distance. I did a race in Vermont called the Vermont Fifty, and it Mm. is just brutal. And I did it on a super heavy trail bike hardtail. It was just awful, but I was hooked after that. Mm. And I started training consistently after that race. I was so hooked. I knew I wanted to get back into racing, and believed that I was capable of being a Uh, an elite level not really knowing much about it and I trained really hard over the winter and in 2018 in the spring I raced two local uh, USAC races and won both of them by a significant margin and Mm. upgraded to because I was already cat one from my road racing days and it translated into I don't know how some of that translation works but it did and (laughs) I ended up getting upgraded after those two races to the pro license for USA cycling so I got my international UCI license and so since pretty much 2018 I've been racing at the elite level it's actually not that long I feel very fortunate that I am where I am given it hasn't been super long
0: well, congrats on that. You're you're kind Thank of you. smack dab in the middle of your prime, right? Or you're kind of entering your best years. How far do you want to take it?
2: It's <laughs> uh, a great question too. I, I guess if
0: racing all came back tomorrow, because that's part of the equation, I'm sure.
2: I, for a short period of time, thought that I wanted to take it so far as to go to the Olympics. Okay. I think I needed to have a different, I need to have a different lifestyle to be able to support that. And I've made, I've made peace with that. It took me a little while. (laughs) (laughs) Now my goal is actually to get to worlds, mountain bike marathon worlds. And that is something where I'm 30. I still have several years of racing at a high level and continuing to grow my endurance base. I mean, I, I started late so every year I'm gaining a little bit more and a little more. And I think in a few years, I'll be really, really strong. 2020's given me the opportunity to get base that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise because I don't have races to have to recover yeah. from. Oh. And yeah, I'd say probably worlds in the next two, three years.
0: What's mountain bike marathon?
2: Mountain bike marathon is the discipline. It's cross country. So okay. it's not enduro where you pedal up a hill and go down and the down segment is timed. It's full distance and marathon races are typically I'll go by time instead of distance. They're typically around three and a half to six hours. Okay. And it could be 35 miles. It could be 50 miles, could be a hundred miles, which would be probably longer than six hours. And sometimes it's a mix of fire road and technical single track. Uh, really depends on the location and mm-hmm. the course, but it's a discipline in itself because it, the Olympic distance of mountain bike cross country mountain biking is more like ninety minutes of racing, yeah. ninety minutes to two hours. So it's yeah. a pretty significant difference.
0: Yeah, I'm always glued to my TV watching the Red Bull stuff. um oh, yeah, UCI cross country, Yolanda Neff, and mm-hmm. and uh, um, it's 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 one of the it's it's one of the few sports where I hands down without question far prefer the women's um field to the men's it's so much more competitive and i don't know if it's because nino schurter's just been dominating and you know i I don't know but it's just the the women's races are so dang competitive and super fun to watch
2: i definitely could be biased but i'm definitely (laughs) i know i'm biased i mean i'm female right so i'm gonna think it's more exciting but I agree with you 100% because you yeah. never know who's going to win. No, you never know. No. And that's you're glued to the TV because even in the last lap and a half, something could happen, you never yeah. know, and usually with the men they've established their. there might be two, three men out front, same ones all the time. And it's not to say that there, it's not exciting. It's just exciting in its own way that I don't find as exciting myself.
0: Yeah, I mean, just just some of the battles, like even when Kate Courtney and, and Yolanda Neff have gone for the last two seasons. I mean, you've got Vanderpool and Nino Schurter, and th- there's definitely good races on the men's side, but it it does feel like there's more dominance on that side, where there's one or two guys versus the... yeah. There was a race last season where it was a German rider, I think it was a five-lap race, and she thought lap four was lap five, and she just yep, turned herself... Out. Yeah, turned herself yep. inside out, crossed... The, It was uh, was
2: in the short track race. She thought that's right. she's always been very strong. She's been in the circuit for several years. And yeah, she thought in the short track race, which is the shorter, almost crit style race that happens two days before the the larger race. She was at the front. She was looking super, super strong and probably could have been a contender to win in Mm -hmm. the race at the end if she had kept track of the the lap cards correctly but i think she had her head down in the second the third to last lap and thought it was so the second <clears> to <throat> last lap or whatever yeah. and sprinted and everyone went by her and
0: mm. it, was it was heartbreaking she handled yeah. it extremely well she kind of laughed it off I and mean, she cried for a minute but she laughed it off and she got interviewed afterwards she's like well yeah. it happens you know
2: there's so. a lot of visibility right i mean people are mm-hmm. still talking about it we're talking yep. about it
0: indeed so, indeed yeah. <laughs> All right. So speaking of, of talking about it, let's, let's get back to talking about you. You mentioned in your blog post, you have a sister with whom you have a very unique uh, relationship.
2: I am, as you mentioned, I am a twin. I have an identical twin sister. We were the two oldest. Technically I was not the oldest. She was by seven minutes, (laughs) which I don't actually believe has any sort of complex for me. um, It sounds like you're still
0: holding the grudge.
2: Yes, I'm not. I'm not bitter at all, Mom.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was your fault you didn't fight hard enough to get out.
2: I know. Well, apparently everything was going well until I started coming out. Then my mom needed a C-section. Oh, no. Yeah. So who knows? But anyway, I have a twin sister, which growing up as a twin, anyone who has knows this or anyone who has friends who are twins knows that there is a tendency to either be in incredibly close to the point where it's kind of weird and or you become somewhat of uh, adversaries across, mm. along the time where you eventually become almost like you're trying to create your own identity, but you can't ever get away from this other person. And for me, it somewhat manifested as me being incredibly competitive. Mm. And I grew up in a family that loved sports, loved being outdoors, and I pursued a lot of athletic adventures in my time, and so did my sister. And I think part of that made me a good athlete, because I had someone I was always competing with. And part of it, I think, also became this competition for admiration, competitions, competition for my parents' attention... And we also had a younger brother too, who I think suffered a lot from being in the shadow of his two overachieving sisters. Um, And for me, I'd say, I think that that's where this journey really began for me is that intense competition. And it wasn't like anyone said, you have to be really good. You have to be the best, but having someone who's always next to you and always being compared to you makes you want to be the best because you want to be the one that outshines because everyone strives to have attention I think that was a piece of it
0: you put it interesting in in the blog post where you said when you when you're when you're one child and you go compete you did go play kickball at school or you run a a race or whatever your parents are like oh my god Kelly you were the best but but you lose that opportunity when you're a twin because they can't tell you both that you were the best you know right so yeah you, you never really you know you're like oh you were you, you 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 sort of have this scorecard always in front of your face.
2: Yes. Yeah. You you constantly are reminded that you're not the only one. And mm-hmm. you go to the same. We we had a lot of the same teachers. My my parents are really good about having us separate in school so that we minimize the amount of comparison. Uh, but in high school, we shared a lot of the same teachers because only one teacher taught calculus, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. And while my sister excelled at more of the writing and the the i would say some of the sciencey type things i was very good at math and the math teacher used to be used to tell my sister why can't you be more like kelly and mm. i had, like killed the competition side of, wow. both of us and, and we have a lot of i won't bore people with all those stories but there's quite a bit out there that happens with i would say probably any set of twins and I think the other piece is with being this overachiever, part of this family who's really active and does a lot of things, I, at a young age, developed serious anxiety because I was playing, I think at one time, I was playing the flute, playing softball, playing soccer, and of course, going to school. And my mom was working a shift. She worked at a hospital in a lab, And her hours didn't coincide with our schedule very well. And so I didn't see her very much. And I was starting to get severe stomach aches. Mm. And for a while, everyone was like, Kelly, cut it out. Like, you just want attention, right? Because that's all I wanted these days. And it turned out to be really bad anxiety because I didn't know where to channel my energy because I was in so many different places. turns out that's a trend in my life is I sign up for way too many things.
0: (laughs) So this (laughs) this anxiety that's giving you these, these stomach aches, where, like, how did, what is it? Does, do you feel the anxiety more than the stomach ache? Is it just manifest like, man, I feel great, but my stomach hurts. Like, what is it? What does that level of anxiety feel like?
2: As a, so my anxiety has, I'll say it has sort of leveled off now. And my mental health is more in the state of if I'm going through some sort of episode, it's, it's depressive is not really, I experience anxiety related to athletics and racing and whatnot. Typical, maybe slightly more extreme, but typical of what any athlete might feel before a big event. Um, but when I was a kid, the anxiety, I didn't have words for it. We didn't really talk about when I growing up, we didn't talk about mental health. We didn't talk about anxiety or depression. And I'm sure it existed in my family, uh, but no one really brought it up. So I didn't really have the vocabulary to even express or even really figure out what was going on. And for me, it just felt like, like a stomachache. I just had a really bad, doubled over in pain, you know, in the fetal position on the ground or whatever kind of stomach ache. I didn't want to go to school because I was in so much pain. And we did a bunch of testing and nothing was wrong with me. Mm. And it turned out that they diagnosed it as anxiety. And I ended up going to see a therapist and we worked through it. And I gained some knowledge about how to manage it as a kid. But I still didn't really manifest it in my mind as this is anxiety. It was just sort of like, you had too many things going on. So try not to do too many things. Yeah. Um, and didn't Did, really understand it. Cause I didn't talk about it too much.
0: Were there, um, was there like a, I don't mean like a, a literal voices in your head, but was there, was it just this flood of thoughts of things that could go wrong? Was it just like, what were the, um, and maybe it was none of it. You said you mainly just felt it in your stomach. So it was not like you were going oh mom, when I, you know, when I go to a start line or when I'm five minutes away from start line, I hear all these thoughts and everything, Hmm. but you know what I mean? Like, were you conscious of something that you can identify now as anxiety or was it literally always just a physical manifestation as pain?
2: This, this happened when I was in fourth grade-ish. And so I would say for me, it was really a manifestation of just pain. And I, I, I think what we ended up determining, how we determined that it was anxiety, is when it would happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It happened. It was triggered by something. It was Got never it. just stomach aches, right? It it would come out of maybe we were driving to a soccer tournament. You know, all those holiday. Before COVID, we used to do soccer tournaments. Yeah, remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we're driving across state lines to go to a soccer yeah. tournament. My God, you or... left your
0: house and cross state lines.
2: I know, wild. <laughs> 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 and we might go play soccer. And as we're driving there, my stomach starts to hurt. Or maybe after a game, my stomach starts to hurt. And it might okay. be that I had a bad game or something. So there was always some sort of trigger around it. Yeah. and. I think it was around sports because that was the most energy-inducing or emotion-inducing activity that I did. Other, you know, flute wasn't. I played the flute, but that's <laughs> not. I wouldn't say that's super exciting. It's beautiful yeah. and wonderful, although I don't know that I was good enough to call my flute playing beautiful or wonderful. Um, but yes, yeah, I would say that it was usually around sports, and we kind of were able to work backwards to say, okay, these are triggering your Yeah, stomach aches that were around having way too much to do. You know, I'd have homework and worried about the game and all that kind of stuff.
0: Maybe Um, if you got into a Jethro Tull cover band, you'd be super (laughs) nervous. That (laughs) is a really, it's a very old reference.
2: (laughs) I, unfortunately, I can laugh and say, maybe, uh, I don't actually know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm my music knowledge is quite low.
0: <laughs> total, total freedom rock. One of the few rock flautists in, in, uh, well, anyway, oh, sorry, go ahead. Aqualung, cool. great song. Yeah. <laughs> look it up, Jethro Tull, Aqualong. Anyway, you've I heard it, I'm sure.
2: It I'm sure I have. I'm sure I have. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so, and then going into high school, I ran my, my sports background goes from T-ball to softball to soccer, lacrosse, track. I did Hershey track when I was a little kid, which was this program that would encourage kids to run outside of school. Mm -hmm. And it was a program during the summer. Um, There was, I did junior Olympic cross country running, varsity soccer in high school. I I played pretty much every sport you could think of, lacrosse. Um, And it got to a point in high school where I narrowed it down to just running. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder
0: at that time too, would you, I wonder we'll get way into the role, the positive role that things like running and cycling play in your, and I think most people's lives in terms of reducing anxiety and stress. I wonder if you didn't have those things, if it would have just transferred onto something else, a big test, a big presentation or some other thing in, you know, the high school play or the elementary school play or whatever, if the anxiety was just always waiting for the thing that was important to you um, to jump out and and sort of grab you.
2: That's a really good point. And I would say, obviously, I I can't speak from experience to say, yes, that's exactly it. But the type of personality that I have, I would say Mm. with 99% confidence that that is exactly what would happen is no matter what, it would have found its way somehow. I do think that sport has helped me manage it better than perhaps other avenues would have. And part of that, we can get into it in a little bit, but I would say that sport has really definitely helped me become a little more mindful about it. And um, no matter what happened, I had gone, I have been through several waves of, I have too much on my plate and I need to drop something. Mm. I will always keep my sport whatever yeah. it is Got it. I even when we when we found diagnosed my anxiety as a fourth grader I actually dropped flute that was what I stopped mm. doing because sport was so important to me even though we found that that was what was triggering yeah. my anxiety attacks it was really about keeping something that made me healthy and happy and excited and passionate right. and yeah that's what sport has always done for me
0: yeah there's no anxiety when you don't care right? It's true.
2: It's true. Yeah. I mean, I care, you know, flute is, it was nice, but it just wasn't, wasn't it's not wasn't me.
0: <laughs> so when does anxiety start to become something more than anxiety for you? It's a good In question. high school or was it, was it the, it seemed like it got much worse when you went to college Yeah, based on your well,
2: writing? Yeah. So I would say based on the Autobiography type blog posts that I had written. My depression, looking back, I think the one thing that's really easy to say is this was what happened. When you're in the middle of something, it's really difficult to call it what it is and it's really difficult to see it. Um, But I would say in college is when my mental health state went from being really anxious all the time into depression. And I wouldn't say that anxiety left me completely. I mean, I, I was anxious about pretty much everything. I have an anxious personality, get nervous about all kinds of things. And with all the tests and things in college and studying and extracurriculars, of course, I was anxious. But I had started, I think, to recognize that I was running myself into the ground to the point where I was had no energy, no motivation. I wanted to sleep all day, and I was constantly in the state of despair, kind of mm-hmm. sadness, and and I think that's really when depression was the the biggest start for me. I would say that I had some depressive episodes when I was younger in high school. Looking back, there were times when I just didn't know what I want, where I wanted to be. I didn't want to be where I was, but I didn't want to be anywhere else. I was tired and unmotivated. I think I had written in one of the blog posts, I had written about how we used to go shopping all the time as kids. Mm. We'd go to Kohl's because Kohl's was the new thing and they had a clearance section and my family loves clearance stuff. So my parents would say, you know, here's $10, go buy something. We always be like clearance. And there were days when we'd go and I would just sit on the floor of the dressing room and be nearly tears in my eyes. It was before the time of smartphones where you could numb yourself with screens. I didn't have that. So I kind of stare or play with the little pins on the floor, stare at the the size things off of the hangers and just kind of roll them along the floor. I just didn't want to be anywhere. And I looking back, I think in hindsight, I can say that was some minor episodes of depression. But then once life, when you become an independent, I'm using air quotes adult in college, that's when everything feels a little heavier and a little, yeah. little harder to bear. And well, that's when depression got pretty bad.
0: Yeah, you don't have that family cocoon sort of giving you even even when you don't talk about things. I remember you know going through things as a kid or whatever, but just coming home and having your mom there, whatever there is a it's like a little maternal hug or whatever it is, even when yep. it's not physical.
2: Yeah, and. I think everyone goes through it, right? You, no matter who you are going to college is this rite of passage in some way. And part of that is figuring out who you are and what you want. For me, I had always seen myself as a runner. I mentioned in sport I had done in high school, in middle school, I was a, I was a big runner. That's who I was. And freshman year, I broke my femur in the middle of a tempo workout. It was the most painful thing I've ever been through was absolutely horrific. But I learned after some period of time, after taking a bunch of tests, going through a bunch of MRIs and whatnot, that I wasn't going to be able to run for probably about a year. And that piece of me was gone. Like the sport had betrayed me. My body had betrayed me and I lost a piece of who I was. And it was really, really challenging. Yeah. That probably was the start of the biggest downfall for me. I ended up spending so much time watching watching TV, mm. like watching, I think I watched every episode of Dawson's Creek. It's embarrassing. <laughs> That's embarrassing. I mean, but wow. it's <laughs> I hear you. Um, wow.
1: <laughs> um, well
0: sorry, what what year was this? I just I'm trying to get a sense for the cultural uh you know, zeitgeist around things like oh you know,
2: it was not the year of Dawson's Creek. It was nowhere near the year. That was many years before me. This was 2000. So the injury happened in the fall of 2008. Okay. And he didn't,
0: I didn't think you were old enough to have been in college with Dawson's Creek,
2: but no, no, but it was a show I loved. Okay, so, um, so, and yeah. <laughs> and
0: and you just you just said something something to the effect of like you know everybody has this right of passage or everybody goes through this. I will tell you, I don't think everybody goes through sitting on the floor in a dressing room, counting pins, trying not to ball their eyes out.
2: Yeah, no, that that's true. No one, not everyone, goes through that. Yeah. Um,
0: did your sister that- have one? Uh, so did your sister suffer any of these things to Have you ever, did you at the time or have you since spoken with her about everything you've been through?
2: It's a great question. Um, I won't get into the details too much with my family only because I want to respect them, but I will say that.
0: I told you I was going to ask some stupid questions.
2: No, no. I think it's important to ask those questions because I, I think there's. Well, it's important It's important to talk about it with your family. And I have with several of my family members. I, I have both my still very, very close with my parents and my sister and my, my brother. So all five of us have always been very close. Um, I never talked about it with my sister because, mm. frankly, I'm not sure that I would have. In high school, we were not very nice to each other. Mm-hmm. Mostly, I was not very nice to her and she just let it. Happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I regret that in so many ways, but obviously can't change the past. Um, being yeah. a high school female is always very difficult. And we didn't really have the vocabulary to even know what I mean, I didn't even know what was going on. I thought it was normal that I just felt that way and that everyone felt that way. Yeah. And I, to your point, when you said not everyone sits in a dressing room playing with the pins, it, it's true. I, I, No, now not everyone does, but at the time I thought it was completely normal. So it didn't seem like something remarkable to talk about or share because I'm not even sure how you'd put that into words as a kid when you've never heard other people talk about it. And I think that's why it's really important to talk about it. And I'd say my sister and I, since I wrote my blog post and have shared a bit more about my journey, she has said that she, you know, she understands, she's empathizes with me and is sorry that she never knew what was going on. Um, and I think she probably experiences her own journey in her own way. I think everyone it manifests differently for everyone. Um, she is a, a very different person than I am, despite being identical twins yeah. and for her and, other family members, they have. I know for certain that other family members have gone through their own experiences independently. We didn't talk about it. We never knew, um, and now we we know, and we're much more open to talking about it and just checking in on each other, which is nice.
0: So whether it's the time that you were in the dressing room counting the pins or fasting for uh, fast forwarding to. Um, high school or college or some other time, um, pre, uh, pre-femur pre snap, because I want to get into that, but pre-femur yeah. snap where you just, um, you're sort of in this emotional agony. Are you, um, are you thinking about something sad or are you just feeling sad and you just can't figure out why the, why, why? <laughs> why the fuck you're feeling sad, frankly.
2: Yeah. Um, it is. I I never took the time to really reflect on it when I was younger now, although you're asking pre femur break. So back then,
0: I mean, even, even still like we can, I just don't want to jump too far ahead in this. So my main question is for, for people who are listening, who don't who have heard a thousand times about depression and they, they're like, well, yeah, I've been sad before, but explain the difference between sadness
1: and depression. It, as Not clinically, but as you felt it, like, what is. um Like pouring rain on you, but there's no, there's not a cloud in the sky. Like you can't figure out where the hell the
0: rain's coming from. It's just like, it's almost starting inside. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so for folks who've never experienced this before or for folks who maybe have experienced it but don't know how to vocalize it, for me it felt like this deep sorrow. Mm. And it didn't have to be triggered by anything. It was just I woke up one morning and I wasn't feeling like myself. I felt like pretty much it, almost like an disassociated experience where i wasn't I wasn't Kelly. I was just the shell of Kelly mm. essentially, and that was usually typically, if I can look back on it, I would say, usually there was something around it. There might have been for the past couple of weeks, so maybe I've been working on this project and I'm not sleeping well and I'm worried about it. Or maybe we lost a big tournament and I felt like I didn't play well and I haven't played well for several games or something in soccer. There was there was usually something around it because if I was feeling a lot of joy and happiness through all kinds of avenues, I think it it would have been masked well enough that I could have ignored it. Um, but for me, it wasn't something where someone said something bad yeah. to me or mean to me, or something happened, and it was an immediate kind yeah. of switch that turned on. It was slow kind of happened over time. Yeah. And I just found myself in that state. And I don't remember, unfortunately, because I didn't spend a lot of time reflecting on it. I don't remember how I got myself out of it. Mm-hmm. That's the the part that I wish I had taken some time because I think it would be really valuable for teenagers, young adults to be able to know some tools of how to do it. And I'm sadly, I'm not the expert because I didn't really even know what was happening while yeah. it was happening.
0: Was it easier when, when something went wrong and you felt it like at least there was some, like you got your, you got your heart broken or you lost a tournament or you something. And you were just like, okay, whew. Like I'm supposed to be sad. I'm supposed to be feeling this good versus like, oh shit, it's Tuesday and I feel like this for no good reason. Did you think about it in those terms?
2: I had never thought about it in those terms, but I will say, it, I, I like your questions because they're making me think. And I will say that I have this propensity toward disappointment and sadness and general letdown. I mm. I have this, I have always gravitated toward that and I think what you just said makes it actually puts to words some of that, which is mm. I actually uh, almost seek out not I wouldn't seek out sadness, but I feel somewhat relieved because then I feel like I belong in that sadness rather than it just being this isolated thing, right? So I would often almost I would say in high school, for example, I sometimes would choose or be happy to hear when a race would get canceled because of rain Mm. instead of getting to shine i'd be like oh man oh Mm. well i guess i guess we're not going to race and it was the it's funny that the one my favorite character in winnie the pooh was eeyore (laughs) and i i couldn't tell you why Mm. I, i even as a kid i didn't know why that was the case but i think looking back it was the character that felt the most real to me,
1: because I
2: mean, Pooh is so whimsical and happy and Peglet's so inquisitive. And, uh, and Eeyore it just was glum and lived happily and unapologetically in his glumness. And for me, that felt like a really comfortable place.
0: That is so interesting. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That is so, you know, it's funny about, I, I'm thinking about that. There's a show right now on Apple um, called Ted Lasso with Jason Sudeikis where he's this like unbelievably positive person. He's this bumbling mm-hmm. American, football, American football coach who then goes to England to coach their football, soccer. And he just sort of like, but, he, but every single episode is so positive. And all I could think is like, this is the best TV I've watched in years because it's so positive. And I think that is my personality which is just, I will always find the sunny side of those things. And I don't look at him like this, like you just said, Eeyore was the most real character. And I look at Ted going, God, we could all be Ted Lasso. And what a world <laughs> it would be, you know? So it's funny how we identify yeah. with those things that are just sort of intrinsically part of us and whether we like it or not, it's almost like your your brain was like saying, no, Kelly, we we have allocated of this month's time to sadness, whether or not something sad happens. It's just the way it's going to be.
2: Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think so. I mean, I don't understand all the science behind it, unfortunately. And I've, I've been starting to do a lot more research and a lot more reading in it. There's some science out there that suggests that depression is really related to more so sociological factors than it is physiological. Hmm. And I think for some people that might be the case, I think there are a lot of people who feel depressed. And it's due to things like connections, disconnection from community or values or a a job that's meaningful. Um, Hmm. And then there are people who are more clinically depressed who there is some sort of physiological difference in the way that their brain works or their chemical makeup. yeah, and I think I fall in that category, right? That Got there's on. they there's a there's something I'm fighting against from nature's standpoint rather than just some of the yeah. outside factors, sort of nature versus nurture thing. Yeah. Um, but it's it's interesting you talk about that TV show and who you resonate with. I think that's one of the driving factors for me, even speaking out about, my mental health journey and my depression and what I've been through. And even though I'm having trouble answering some of your questions, right? Because I, I don't know all the answers, even about myself. The fact that I'm being willing to share and be open about it gives other people a real character that they can resonate with. Right. So someone who might be confused and doesn't have all the answers, but is willing to talk then is an example of what they can also do for themselves and i think that's what why i'm willing to be vulnerable and share some of the darker things about my own journey because if it makes one person feel empowered to talk about what they've been through it starts to build that vocabulary for other folks to feel like okay maybe i build upon how it is she explained it and yeah i felt a lot like that and also i felt like this and getting that out there helps to kind of end that, or at least start to chip away at that stigma around mental health and it being this invisible disease.
0: Well, I think that's one thing that your generation takes a whole lot of flack on. Um, you know, the term snowflake gets thrown around a lot and oh, everything <laughs> has to have meaning and everything else. Yeah. And I think that the, you know, when you go, when I was a kid, there was a famous movie at the time called Francis farmer, where, a um, she was an actress where her her she was basically remanded to the state pen uh, um, uh, asylum and was lobotomized because mm. she was mentally ill and her mom didn't like how her brain worked and basically this woman was, you know, I mean, basically captured and lobotomized. um and you fast forward, you know, basically a generation and a half and and all of a sudden it's it's, your generation is one is, you know, they want meaning out of life. They want meaning out of their jobs. They want meaning in their experiences and relationships. They are open to talking about things like this, where my generation, you know, Gen X was, um, you know, we, we probably pat ourselves on the back way too much for being tough and this, and you know, we were sort of the latch key generation, you know, um, that type of thing. But the reality is, is, yeah, there's a whole lot of pain that lives under the, under the covers that never gets talked about. So, uh, to you and your generation, I think it's great that you are coming forward and bringing a lot of these things out into the open. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Thank so, you. <laughs> you're welcome. Well, thank you. I don't thank me. Um, so to this point, to the femur snappage, you've got yes. <laughs> something, um, which I think probably everybody listening to this podcast, running, riding, swimming, you name it is the thing that has gotten them through whether it's COVID the lockdown, losing a job, losing a friend, losing a parent, losing some valuable piece of their life. It has yeah. always been endurance sports that has gotten us through. So you're in the yes. middle of college. Well, not in the, you're in the beginning of college, I guess, but they all of a sudden you snap your femur, not in a car accident, not jumping off a roof, not, uh, <laughs> I mean, you do it running, not falling, running. So, um, so from there, all of a sudden you lose the outlet, you lose the thing that could probably save you from certain sadness. How, just walk us through that.
2: Sure. For me, it was, it was terrifying for one. It, It, it was not something that happened overnight where I I realized immediately that I had lost the thing that I loved most about myself. And it's unfortunate because it was also the thing that brought me the most sense of pride because I would win races or do well. And people acknowledged that and said, wow, you're willing, you're doing really well and winning races. And it made me feel good. It was that mm-hmm. sense of accomplishment, sense of um attention that I had always seeked, and now i had I had lost that outlet for that as well, in addition to all the benefits of being an endurance athlete in general and having that outlet, whether you're racing or not. And I think the what happened was I was in the middle of a tempo workout, and my knee right above my knee, every step I took was getting slightly more painful. And I was like, oh gosh, something's kind of weird here. And I was, should have been totally fine to run with the group that I was with. And every step I was getting a little slower. My coach, who's like, Desharnes, pick it up. I'm like, I can't, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And, um, and I being very stubborn and have a pretty high pain tolerance, continued to run. I I had gone from a very low mileage program in high school to a very, not very high mileage, but a relatively high mileage comparatively to where I had come from. And we were doing two a days, I'd wake up at six in the morning, cram down a little bit of cereal and get out for morning intervals on the golf course and then long tempo runs in the afternoon or just long endurance runs. And I was a freshman. I didn't know how to speak up because of course any freshman who's super competitive wants to just make a name for themselves. And yeah. I, I started to feel the slight ache above my knee and it was an ache that it felt like when you have to crack your ankle, you know, it feels mm-hmm. kind of tight and you're like, oh, I just gotta crack that. So it felt like that. Um, but as I can, as I started running and doing this tempo workout and then it became pain and then the, that night I couldn't walk. The trainer had sort of said, you know what? It's a strain, it's a muscle strain and we'll treat you for it. They were doing all kinds of treatment, having me jog on it. For about a month, I was going through this and not seeing any any improvement. And yeah, it was really, really bad. And eventually I'd said, you know what, I want, I want MRI. Like something is wrong. I know my body. And I had said it was broken on day one, but they didn't. You know, I'm a freshman, what do I know? Right. I'm like a homesick freshman. They're like, no, you're being you're being ridiculous. And they they had me get an MRI and they actually thought it was bone cancer. They actually thought that I had cancer because of how bad the fracture was. Wow. And that was when I realized I had lost it because before I had this hope that it was just this muscle strain and I would still meet with the team. And then when the team would go out for their run, I'd go to the the trainer and I would get all my treatment done and maybe go for a little jog around the track and then come back crying. Cause it was so painful. <laughs> um, and I was like wow. clinging onto this hope that it wasn't, it was, it, I hadn't lost myself. And then when they said, you can't, you can't run, you can't even walk. You can't, you, you can't do anything for months. Um, that's when I realized that I had slowly, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't able to go to practice. I couldn't, I couldn't get myself to go and meet with the girls because it was too hard. It was this reminder that I couldn't do what everyone else was doing. And I couldn't be part of that thing that I wanted to be part of. And that's when I started to kind of spiral downward into this terrible place, really, really bad place. And, um, losing that was really tough. Because it was, like I said, it was part of my identity. I mean, it was who, how everyone back home knew me it was Kelly the runner. I used to wear American flag shorts, and so everyone would recognize me as Kelly the runner with the American flag shorts. <laughs> it was like mm. such a goof looking back. Um, but it was my tribe. Yeah. It was, it was. You know, I was, I was always sort of different, and I found my tribe in that in endurance sports. And wow. I didn't feel that anymore when I had lost it. And when I got back into it, when I finally recovered a year later, got back into running. I was jogging slowly. I had finally trusted my body enough to to race. And I had gotten myself to the point where I could do a six K, I think is the race length that they have in cross country for college. And I ran and I was like, this wasn't fun. I had Mm. no fun. I didn't enjoy the demands of a division one sport and i went to the coach and i told him i i can't i can't do this anymore i'm not happy and i've made up my mind and i left i left the team and then i had a friend tell me you should join cycling and that's what i did
1: (laughs) wow okay let's (laughs) stay on running take
2: a break
0: (laughs) let's stay on running for just a minute so were were you on scholarship
2: no so bucknell university is where i went to school and bucknell is part of the patriot league and the patriot league actually can't give well i don't know all the stuff that happens behind closed doors but i think from uh agreement being part of it's sort of like the ivy league where you can't they don't have athletic scholarships
0: okay so you're so it's not necessarily a um A financial decision at this point to quit running. So like, you know, you weren't, I guess you weren't under the gun, so to speak to you have to run or you you get kicked out of college.
2: Yeah. I actually Uh, looking back at that, I'm very grateful that that's the case because I don't know what would have happened if I had to stay in running.
0: Yeah. No kidding. Do you think, um, before you got in, like, do you think, um, the, You said you didn't like the demands of division one did running all of a sudden become more of a have to and a job type of feeling like, was it outside the injury and then the injury just made it worse? Were you already sort of waning
2: from that? Yes. The yes, I I think it, it felt like this necessity that it was more of a chore, just like I had to do my homework from my courses. Now it just became this other thing I had to show up to and I didn't, I had spent a year not doing it. I mean, I I would go and hang out with everyone outside of, of practice, but I didn't go to the locker room anymore. I had my locker in, in the team locker room and it was empty. It might've had like a pair of flip-flops in it or something, Mm. but it wasn't decorated. It didn't have all kinds of stuff in it. I didn't go to any of the meets that everyone went to. I just, I had lost that connection and that Mm. intrinsic value that you get from being on a team because I didn't really have that anymore, and to show up a year later and have missed out on a lot of those experiences with the team, it was. It, I felt like a black sheep almost, like oh, I didn't belong anymore. And and it wasn't that no one took me in to try to make me feel they were all excited to have me back. But it, I, in, for me, it just I had lost the spark, the love mm. that had made me appreciate the sport so much and I think part of it was that I had felt really betrayed by the sport and by my body and I think i I wasn't willing to put forth the effort to go back to where that state where I had gotten injured right because clearly something was wrong and we never figured out what caused it we don't know what happened okay. and I didn't I didn't want to have to go through that again and I I felt like this is just too much of my body and I I had to give it up
0: was there? So there was no eating disorder or
2: um, uh, anything. Yes. <laughs> oh,
0: was it? Oh. So there
2: was no diagnosed eating disorder. Okay. Um, but I would say for even in high school, I was very. But I would say definitely in college was when it was the worst. I had disordered eating. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I was anorexic by any means, but I was surrounded by a bunch of girls who were faster than me and yeah. a lot of them were thinner than me and yeah. i've always had this very athletic build bigger quads um bigger calves like i've always had this more muscular build and watching a lot of the women in the elite level sport and a lot of the women performing Really well at all the meets that we go to. They're all super thin, long distance runners. And I didn't associate with that. And in my mind, felt like, okay, if I have to step up my game and be the best runner I can be, I probably need to lose a little weight. And I'd never really said this to myself. I wouldn't look in the mirror and say, you must lose X number of pounds. But it was this constant reinforcement from the people around me. And we, For me, I I had some closer friends who were wouldn't eat very well. They were they were I know that there were some girls on the team who were diagnosed anorexic and I ate Meal almost every meal with them and Mm. their behaviors started to become my behaviors. And that was somewhat, especially when you're new, you're a freshman in college and you just want to make new friends. I was like, okay, I'll eat like them. I'll be like them. And instead of embracing my, I love these crackling oat brand cereal that is supposedly super fatty and has (laughs) so many carbs, right? Like people would talk about that and be like, I can't eat that. It's there's too much in it. I'm like, yeah oh it tastes really good but then I'd be like no nope, you can't eat it there's too much in it or I'd like sneak a couple but it, you know for me wow. it, it was it had become a very yeah. much a reinforced behavior and that that I think that contributed to me breaking my quad um my femur rather but I don't yeah. I don't know for sure okay and like I said no, no one really diagnosed it the nice thing was because I wasn't it wasn't this long-term anorexia, a long-term behavior. I don't, I didn't suffer any long-term ramifications okay. from it either. Right. It. a lot of my friends who did ended up having stress fractures their entire collegiate career and beyond, and have not been able to return to their potential as an athlete because of it.
0: Certainly very common, especially amongst yes. women. Uh, but For I've seen sure. it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've seen it, you know, I wrestled and there was all the whole weight weight loss component to that. The difference yep. in wrestling, there's a there's a there's a floor. You're hitting a weight class, you hit the weight class and then you would bounce up and down during the season. So you would gain ten yep. pounds and then you'd lose it for the match. And I don't th- most wrestlers would never tell you it's an eating disorder. It was like a it was um like a source of discipline or something. Other th- yep. there are eating disorders in wrestling, don't get me wrong, but it's not the same. Whereas in running um, or like road cycling, especially, there's once you hit a certain level, there's only one way to get faster. And that is yeah. to get lighter. You know? Yeah. Like once you've maxed out your training, you've maxed out all these other things, that's the next thing to go. And so, and there is no floor, then. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like you're just trying to hit that weight class. You're you just wow, I got I got a little bit faster when I got a little bit lighter and I got a little bit, you know. So what um Jumping back to you, get off of me, but the, <laughs> what, um, what took the place of running in that year? Was there anything that gave you that stress relief, that endorphin hit that like, did something take the place of physical activity?
2: How do I answer this without incriminating myself? Um, oh. <laughs> uh, I, I partied a bit. Okay. Yeah, yep. quite a bit. And it was really unhealthy. It was, I think, somewhat like someone would try to numb themselves with social media using their phone. It was a way to be part of something. So I would go out with my running friends or whatever and felt I was always seeking attention, you know, it's sort of a theme in my life and mm. being. Someone who would be kind of outgoing and life of the party kind of person would help me feel like I belonged in a place yeah. where I didn't really feel like I had my place. And I would say that's probably one of the things that I did. Otherwise I'd say I focused a lot of energy into my education, my studying. I became, I think prior to the injury, I was very much a runner first and then an engineer. And after the injury, I became an engineer first okay. and then and then an athlete much later. And so I started to channel my energy into tests. And when I first started as a freshman, I didn't even know how to study well. I mm-hmm. I had gotten some pretty poor exam scores. And then this injury happened and I became a really good student because I didn't really have much else to focus okay. on. Um, so I'd say I channeled a lot of my energy into that as well. Um, I wasn't I wasn't like an every-night partying person. It was like a weekend thing, and it was a chance for me to be part of something um, because my studying was pretty lonesome. And as a freshman, you're in a lot of intro courses that are, a lot of other people are in, so there isn't a lot of uh, interaction with professors and, and staff at the university.
0: Okay, so it wasn't that you went down like... Um a spiral of bad behavior. It was you, you replaced some things with some bad things, but you were otherwise yeah. still pretty high functioning student, et cetera. Okay.
2: Yes. Yeah. Okay. I never, I didn't let things slip to the point where I was going to have to drop out of school. I, I'd say quite the opposite actually, okay. where I think things got better. So maybe it was a blessing in disguise. Mm. I, I became more involved in academic type activities. I became part of some clubs a service community service organization. There were other things I did that I likely I can say with pretty strong confidence, I would not have been able to, or even motivated to be part of had I stayed with the D one yeah. demands.
0: That's one of the beauties of college, right? Is that you get to shed that, that shell that has formed yeah. around you for the first 12 years of education where like you're like you're almost told who you are by your peers yeah. rather than you saying this is who I am. Yeah. And then you get to go to college and you're like, Oh, I get to dress different or talk different or act different or get into yeah. things that I haven't been involved in. So that's interesting. Well, and
2: I wasn't Kelly the twin anymore. Yeah. For me, I was Kelly the individual who will talk about her twin, but it doesn't define me. And that's that was a really big freedom for me wow. because I always, because for the the like the years leading up to that through high school were challenging. Um, I think the other piece that is worth mentioning is that I was, I was grateful to be at the school that I was at because there were so many other opportunities to express who I was without relying on my sport and my team. Mm. When I was looking at different schools and deciding where I wanted to go, one of my I can't remember who said it to me, but one person had said to me, pick a school and a program that you would want to be in if something ever happened to you and you're running because they knew that running was so important to me. And I had thought, you know, nothing's ever going to happen to me. Right? Like what would happen to me? Seriously? I love running. I love the people in running. Nothing's ever going to happen. But Maybe I should consider, okay, where would I be happy if something were to happen? Heaven forbid. Yeah. And I knew that it was, nothing was ever going to happen, right? But why not pick a program where I felt like I could be myself in my academics and felt like it was a good fit in other ways. And yeah. I'm so dang glad that I did. And that's when people, when I've talked to other kids who are looking at school, I tell them that same thing is... If you had to give up the one thing that means the most to you, would you still be happy at that wherever you end up? Yeah. And I'm really glad that I chose where I went to because it's an amazing school with or without the running.
0: You have to remember who told you that and go buy them a really good bottle of wine.
2: <laughs> I know. I'm going to have to dig deep into the the mind palace of yeah. of my memories.
0: <laughs> so was the was the worst your depression ever got that first like couple months of the injury was that was that the worst of it No.
2: uh at that time up to that point yes okay but now being 30 years old i can tell yeah. you it is not not the worst of it okay. um i the worst of it came after college and i can talk about it if you want or if you wanted That's, to talk yes Okay. Uh, not that, not that I, a, I,
0: I, didn't mean no, to answer no. so eagerly. Like, yeah, let's hear about all the terrible <laughs> yes, things that have happened it. to you. Um, um but yes, no, let's, no. let's. P-
2: please, uh, please don't worry. I, I, an open book. I think it takes a, a minute to give the background, mm-hmm. which is that after running, I joined the cycling club at college at Bucknell and it's a road cycling club. I had no idea bike racing was a thing before college, because it was never a sport that my parents knew of. We would, we had bikes as a kid, but it was like, let's ride around the neighborhood with no hands. That's cool. You know, instead of let's go out for a 10 mile bike ride. Um, and for me, I joined it because it was, I think I was drawn to it because it was still this embracing the outdoors, being part of a team, but it was a club. So there was a lot less expectation and level of commitment was a lot lower than the running program that I was in. So I felt less intimidated by it, especially after having taken such a long hiatus from commitment to practicing and all that kind of stuff. So it was very free form. I could be myself. And I don't think anyone on the team would get angry with me saying that it was a it was a group of people who were a little goofy and a little maybe didn't fit the other crowds. And they yeah. all gravitated toward each other in a way that made everyone feel like they belonged, which was really nice. Uh, so I joined the club and raced throughout the rest of college and ended up doing quite well. And then graduated and continued to ride and race a little bit. I had really... I I graduated with a degree in biomedical engineering, I should say. So that is my full-time job is as an engineer, even today. And I race on the side (laughs) in my free time, whatever that means. (laughs) And so I actually have a coworker, a previous coworker used to call me a bicycling bat woman. So engineer by day, (laughs) pro cyclist by night. (laughs) As I've coined, I've used that term here and there, but... So that's been my MO is sort of this multitasker, whatever, many hats kind of person. And when I had graduated, my my focus had initially been on riding for fun, riding on the road for fun with my boyfriend at the time. And then I was really focused on my career and Mm -hmm. growing as a professional. And then I broke up with my boyfriend and then had a really, really bad spiral where Mm -hmm. I... I was living alone in an apartment and didn't have a ton of friends. I had friends, but they were more superficial E uh-huh. kind of friends. I had a few closer friends, but didn't know how to verbalize how what I was going through. I was kind of growing and figuring out what I wanted. And my boyfriend was, or my ex-boyfriend was my training buddy. Mm. And he was, he was the person I do the long rides on the weekend with and all of that. So I, I kind of lost my motivation to ride really lost myself and I would come home from work, leave all the lights on in my apartment. It would be five in the afternoon, four thirty in the afternoon. I'd come home from work, leave all the lights on, go sleep on the bed, you know, in my work clothes, work, work shoes, wake up at like two 30 in the morning, make a ham steak and some peas and mm. eat dinner and then go back to bed it was such an unhealthy habit wow. and i had gotten to the point where life felt kind of pointless and i had really quite i had spiraled pretty badly to the point where i w- i was and i admit this in my my uh blog post i was definitely suicidal i had wow. i had not gone so far as to attempt anything but i had pretty much gone to the point where right before then i mean it was really, really bad. And I'd say that was the worst I've ever been. Okay. I would say I, this year, I haven't been that much far, that much further off, unfortunately with, um, with being with de- the, depressed yeah. and having suicidal ideation and all of that. It's, I, I am, like I said, I'm an open book and it's a probably an uncomfortable topic to listen to. And I know it can be triggering for people. So um, that's definitely something to be mindful of. If you're listening to this podcast, for me, it's this year has been just as probably just as tough as that period of my life. And And well,
0: well, I just I just wanted to there's a few questions that I have, I didn't mean to cut you off. But I just wanted to I I did want to interject that, um, like you are not living in a one bedroom apartment all alone. I happen to know you're married. And so it's, you know, that's, I just wanted to point out the fact that it wasn't that um, you are so isolated, although you're isolated from racing. Um, I wanted to jump back real quick though to the boyfriend side of things. You seem to, um, at multiple times in your life, it seems like there's, um, you're a very identity-based person. Kelly the runner, Kelly the cyclist, Batgirl, you know, uh, Kel cat and the the different, (laughs) the different things. Was it, were you in the breakup? Were, was it, um, a lot of people, especially in their first big relationship, they sort of identify as, oh, we're Kelly and Bob, you know, like you're the couple, you're the, you know, you're like the, the peanut butter and jelly versus, you know, and so when, when you guys broke up, was it, um, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but like, how much of it was like I'm devastated because I'll call him Bob. That's the name I have in my head, but you know, <laughs> it's Bob versus no, it's Kelly and Bob that that died. You know,
2: do you know uh, what I mean. It was very much a piece of my identity, and yeah. I think that is why it was so bad. It became so bad for me because it was. We'll use Bob to protect his his identity um though many people who are close to me know that's not his name (laughs) it's okay uh kelly and bob were a thing it was my all my aunts and uncles my grandparents my our friends we were this very amicable We, we got along really well we were best friends we'd text all the time we'd call all the time i lived alone he was still in college uh, he was, he had gone to college a, a couple of, or a year and a half or so longer than me. And um, he was at a university within driving distance of where I was living. So it was pretty easy. And yeah, it was, there was there. Actually, I was the one who broke up with him. It was mm. because I felt like it wasn't right that, it was Kelly and Bob, I, you know, I was part of this identity and I actually didn't feel like myself anymore. Mm. It felt like it wasn't the right fit for me. And I, I mean, I I won't go into all the details, but it's, it was a piece of me that felt wrong in a way. And I, I had to let go of it. And that was really tough because I was willingly letting go of something that for, we were together for almost five years and it, Mm. and it felt like it was, for many years, it felt like that it was the right fit. And to, to feel this conflict internally, which was you are, you are not this and you are this at the same time, uh, really tore me apart. And then after feeling that sense of, did I do the right thing? Did I not do the right thing? What is the right thing? Right. And, and, um, that, I, I didn't have a lot of people to talk to about that. I mean, of course, my family would listen and I had friends who would listen, but it, ne- it needed serious reflection on what, what I was feeling. And I just, I'm the kind of person who is so intense, would rather bury my feelings because I never had to really think about my feelings before. Mm-hmm. I would just bury them and focus on something else. So I, at the time, would f- just focus in my work and and as the trend continues um also some unhealthy social behaviors uh like weeknight partying and things like that which is not not yeah. great um but again seeking sort of this finding someone's approval finding yeah. someone's uh attention and and trying to not think about figuring out why it was i was unhappy and not feeling like myself
0: Hmm. So there's this, <clears throat> there's this um, character, this identity character, um, Kelly the partier, who keeps like popping up from time to time. Like, what's up? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, she, yes. she doesn't seem to stay very long, but <laughs> gets you either into or out of your rough patches.
1: But um, yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. I think
2: into yeah, Kelly the partier is not a good, not not a good piece of me. Um, I shouldn't say that. Every piece of me is a good piece of me in whatever way whatever value it has. Yeah. Um, I haven't had that piece of me really brought to light in many years because of my athletic pursuits. I've actually said yeah. uh, put that put that one to rest for a little bit
1: yeah what
0: got you out of it what 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 got you to f- uh, f- uh, stiff arm Kelly the partier, get yourself <laughs> out of bed and um no more ham steaks and peas at two thirty in the morning
2: <laughs> there were Three things, maybe two. The first was I had a friend at work who had gone through some similar mental health kind of things. He recognized that I was alone. He recognized some of the signs of what was going on. He could see that I was in a really dark place because I'd go to work and I would kind of be super self deprecating. I would just. I was, I was not, I was actually quite a pleasant person because I'm really, really good at hiding Mm -hmm. what's going on. But he knew me well enough that he knew something was wrong. And he had told me, Hey, my lease is cut or the person, the house I'm living in, they're selling it. And I need a place to live. I know you have an extra bedroom. Can I live with you? And in retrospect, I know he had probably four other options. Mm. He he definitely did not need to live with me, but I think he knew what was going on and he knew I needed someone. And he offered to live in this tiny bedroom in my little two bedroom apartment. And uh, so I would say he helped me a lot because he talked me through, he introduced me to a psychologist. He really walked me through some of his journey and talking through what he had been through, and what it felt like. A lot of this, you know, putting words to the feelings yeah. is it, it, it sounded so weird to say that, but giving giving voice to that yeah. is really powerful. So did, I'd say that was one piece.
0: Did you um so you clearly opened up to him. was this the first non-therapist, I guess, in your life that you'd ever really opened up to at this level?
2: Yes, okay. yeah, it was. I yeah. hadn't even really talked to my my ex-boyfriend about it because I again, I a friend of mine, In college, actually my best friend in college, she had been through her own journey and she had actually tried medication and she had said, you know, I think you could be on medication. And I was severely Mm. insulted by this. I was like, how dare you say that there's something wrong with me and I need medication. Mm. And our friendship actually started to falter after that. There was a lot of factors, but we had a falling out Mm. and I I never really talked with her about it and I think she could have been the first person, but I was reluctant to hear it. Mm -hmm. And he was, I was finally at a point where I needed to hear someone else and needed to talk to someone else. And he, this, this guy, my roommate was, was that person. He's really, really nice person.
0: Did he just ask all the right questions or, or did you open up to him? Was it a combination of timing and he being the right person?
2: I think it was a a combination. Okay. Yeah, it was it was good timing. I mean, I, I don't like to say luck. I don't like to use the word luck because I think luck implies that you didn't do anything. Um and it just comes to you and for me he it was I was very fortunate to have the timing where he was in a place to find somewhere new to live and also in a place in his life where he was willing to talk about what he had been through. So I, I think it was a little both. He he started to ask me questions and, and I knew he wasn't judging me mm-hmm. and I knew he was willing to hear it. And he had actually started by sharing his own experiences like, hey, Kelly, this is what I've been through. Mm-hmm. This is what it felt like for me. And this is how I help myself. He, he said he used to look in the mirror and say, I love you to himself every day. And I'm like, that is the most ridiculous thing in the world because I don't love myself. No. Why? I would never say that to myself. Mm. And he's like, just say it. And eventually you will. And I would, sometimes I'd be in the kitchen and the bathroom was right next to the kitchen. And I would hear him telling himself he loves himself in the mirror in the morning. And I'm like, this is, this sounds ridiculous. But then I realized that it worked for him. Mm. And he, by him sharing what worked for him, by him sharing his own experiences it made me feel one safe to to share my own experiences and two it made me it it gave me a vocabulary to use when i opened up to him and i would say he was the first person that i really felt like i could talk to and it it came a lot from being able to relate to him and knowing that whatever i said to him he would get it and wouldn't be judgmental about it
1: mm.
0: Got it. Yeah. Do you yeah. do you still do you did you ever do it? Look at yourself in the mirror and do it.
2: Every once in a while, <laughs> I will. And I still don't believe it. I, I'll tell you I I have a serious imposter syndrome and serious issues with self-acceptance. It's something I have to work on every day. But every once in a while, I'll even, I think my own version of it is me telling myself that I'm strong and I'm worthy. Those are the two things that I'll repeat to myself often. Sometimes when I'm on doing intervals on my bike, I'll be like, you're strong. You are strong. Mm-hmm. You are strong. Um, and that's a good reminder for me. And then sometimes when I feel like I'm not worthy of something, I just have to remind myself that I get to create my own worth and no one else gets to define it for me.
0: I love that. That's
1: cool. Yeah.
2: Um, and I'd mentioned there were two things that helped yep. me, no, no, helped no, me keep out. Yep, and yep. the other piece... The other piece was I had a coworker who believed that the resolution to any problem in your life is to ride a mountain bike, and I, <laughs> and being a, a road cyclist, I'm like that is baloney. But I couldn't ride the road anymore. I just didn't love it, and I Ro- bought a cyclones. full suspension.
0: Road cycling, come on! But <laughs> everybody knows this. It's... Everybody knows it. Mountain biking is Yeah,
2: better. I suppose.
0: All right, sorry, sorry to interrupt. <laughs>
2: Everyone knows. I don't think any one type of sport is better than others. Generally speaking, obviously I I love my sport. I love mountain biking, but there's value and merit to every type of discipline of every sport, except for maybe golf. (laughs) Um, Just kidding. We're going to, but
0: we're both making people angry because I would say, yes, (laughs) absolutely. Generally speaking, (laughs) of course there are merits to every sport except, um, Except golf, <laughs> um, curling. We'll um, say so curling. I, you, you pronounced, curling. You you pronounce curling. You pronounce curling wrong. It's pronounced. Curling.
2: Oh, my bad.
0: Yeah, not yeah, golf. It's, a it's lot of that people mistake Massachusetts accent. <clears throat> <Yeah. laughs> I, right. I
2: just have a really thick Massachusetts accent. My bad.
0: Right. Undug ourselves. <laughs> Nobody know what the hell we're talking about.
2: <laughs> um, so I bought a mountain bike on a whim. It was way too fancy for me, way too a nice, sweet bike, but I bought it. It's it was the... a sweet oh, yes, yeah, yeah, the Santa Cruz, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm. um, and I started mountain biking, and it gave me a new challenge because what... mountain biking is incredibly challenging. I
0: was gonna say, was he right? Was he right in saying that the resolution of any problem is?
2: Yes, well. In my experience, yes. So far. Uh, Because that did become the resolution to pulling me out. Um, I ended up meeting some fantastic people through the sport, some really encouraging people who believed in me and stuck with me. And I'd go out for rides with a bunch of guys who were 30 years, 20 years, 15 years, whatever, older than me, Mm. and they would wait for me at the corners, and they wouldn't Mm -hmm. treat me like Oh, you're this child, and we're only going to ride a few minutes with you, and then we're going to take off or whatever. They waited for me all the time. They, every time I crashed, which was quite often, they would ask me <laughs> if I was okay and they would look out for me. And it was so, so awesome. I learned that the community, the mountain bike community, is so fantastic. Yeah. And it gave me this. New sense of accomplishment in a totally different way than I've ever experienced before. Because I was a beginner again. I mean, I was, I was going from yes, I had fitness, and that was probably the only way that I was able to hang on enough to this group of guys that I was riding with. But I, I going over even just small rocks was terrifying, and I would crash, and it was fast. It was fast forward kind of crashing. I mean, it was like one second I was up, next second I was down, and had bruises all over me. Yep. And it was, it was exciting and exhilarating and really something where I felt like I could see myself progressing and growing. And it gave me a sense of direction. I didn't know where I was headed because there was no intention to race at the time. It was just get out of my own head. Yeah. And I was able to meet with a, a new group of people who were genuine and kind and welcoming and then also feel like I was growing and becoming something new. Uh, and I think the newness and the path toward this direction toward becoming better at something gave me hope. And that hope was enough to really pull me through. And simultaneously, I met the the man who now is my wife. Uh, why, oh my God! You're gonna have to. You're gonna <laughs> yeah, have to that cut out. that out. The man who, the Damn man it. who is now my husband. You, you were nailing. <laughs> the man it. who is now my husband. I know, right? Um, yeah, I, I met yeah. Joe, my husband, and well, he was part of that group of of guys who I was riding with, and he he helped me grow as a rider and became a really close friend before we even started dating.
0: So it sounds like, I mean, you. I'm sure you know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. but, like the the um the the reimagining Kelly, the kelly, Kelly the blank seems to be like the triggering of your rebirth. like you're you're clearly somebody who needs to reinvent yourself every whatever it is, five years, ten years, whatever it is. But the, <laughs> um, it's really yeah. interesting. I mean, you have this very clear pattern in your life where it's sort of like as you, Um, as you, as that skin starts to get a little old and, you know, tight and confining and you start to shed that off and, you know, you sort of like step out of that, um, shell or cocoon or whatever it is to, you know, into the Kelly, the new, um, you know, that seems to be it. So that was two. So you said there were two and a half or three things. So is there a third thing?
2: Well, three is, is Joe. Is, my Joe, husband now. is Joe finding? He was the, I think he was the piece. And and yeah. I'm not to say that a person is the thing that needs to pull you out of darkness. I don't think you need to rely on someone else. It just happened to be that in the wake of me finding a sport that gave me hope, he yeah. was also there and, and helped me along and has unapologetically been by my side yeah. unconditionally. I mean, he has seen me through. St- I mean, I was coming out of my darkest point and has seen me through several other dark points and has never faltered, has has always been by my side by showing that he supports me even though I I feel very broken at times. Mm. And I would say uh, to your point about reinventing myself, I never really put it that way, but I think there's a season for everything, right? Mm. Road cycling had its value and its purpose in my life And the season had needed change. It was no, that, that sport road cycling, at least as a, as a competitive sport was no longer serving me in the way that I needed it to. And mountain biking has become that or had become that for me as this new type of way of keeping me growing and motivated and I'd say now one of my newest reinventions is this stepping into a role as a mental health advocate, because it's giving me a connection yeah. to a community that right now I have no connection to because of COVID and can't be around other people.
0: Yeah. Let's dive into that. Is your is your hair brushing your phone right now? We talked about this before. Oh. It might uh, be. I'm, I'm, I'm getting sorry. a little, I don't think it was too bad. I'm I am getting a little bit of a scratching in my ear though, so... I think you're good. How was
2: that? Is that better?
0: Yep, I think so. Okay. Yep, <clears throat> I don't know how long it was happening okay. like that, but I don't think it was ever too bad.
2: Right. Um,
0: Probably not too bad. So, I'm so glad that you said more than the more than the mountain biking. I think the um, it 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 would feel like kind of old school in the sort of hey man pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just get out there and you know smile type of thing, which I know yeah. is. One of you need to smile. Why are you looking like Just smile? But, um, yeah. Why, so we're not that you could necessarily, I mean, there's no way to know, I guess, which was important or could you have pulled through without one or two of those things? But, um, it seems to me, like you couldn't have gotten through like mountain biking wasn't going to be enough. Your roommate certainly played yeah. a massive, just talking about it. Um, and those yep. things, whether the affirmations worked or not, I think probably just getting that stuff out of your own mouth was probably a massive yeah. thing. But how do you look at the three things compared to one another or compared against each other? It's whatever.
2: <laughs> I I know what you're asking. I can understand. <laughs> uh, I would say the, I would say the most important piece. And I, I have actually reached out to my friend because we, we have, grown somewhat distant now because he's moved to the Midwest and we've kind of lost touch a little bit, but every once in a while, I'll remind him that he, he saved my life. I mean, he, there's no doubt about it. I could have found probably a million things that would have served me in the same way that mountain biking did at that time. I could have taken up knitting probably and been the expert knitter, right? I, that, that was an activity that gave me a new identity and gave me a sense of growth and purpose. But had I not had my friend as a someone who could make me feel like I wasn't broken mm. and wasn't alone and gave me a space to talk through some of the stuff that I was working through, I probably wouldn't have grown haven't I wouldn't have been able to pull myself through. So I would say that is he was by far, the person who gave me the most to, to ultimately pull myself out. I mean, I, I can't say that he did it for me. Mountain biking did it for me. Joe did it for me. I, I did it myself. And that's probably one of the biggest parts and most challenging pieces for a lot of people to realize is that when you're really depressed, no, no one can help you besides yourself. You're going to have to work toward it to, to, get yourself out of a toxic cycle or pattern or, or whatever it is medication even will will get you so far but you you have to be you you have to answer and serve yourself in the way that you need to and he gave me the space to feel like i was worthy hmm. of doing that and that i was worthy of spending that energy and waking up every day answering to myself and feeling positive again. Hmm. Wow! So weighing all of them, I'd say not nothing against my now husband. Uh, yeah. but he, I think yeah. my, my friend had the biggest impact for sure.
0: Well, and certainly came your Joe came later, right? So
2: yes. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> maybe, yeah. maybe had your friend not come around, you would never have been in a place. Uh, even had you gotten into mountain biking in that same group, mentally you just wouldn't have been in a place to either catch Joe's eye or even want his want, you know, want that from yeah, him. So
2: that's very true. Yeah. So absolutely.
0: So you mentioned that right now with COVID and everything, um, you know, you've you've had a rough year. And that came out in the in the previous podcast where we were talking about unpaved. Um, what are you I mean, what are you doing? You The races aren't around, obviously you can train and things like that still, but it sounds like the, the, the racing and the training and the physical fitness side of things is a, is a necessary component, but it's not the key component. The key component is the inner talk, you know, the, the affirmations and things like that, or just talking about it. Maybe this is part of the healing process, being able to just talk openly about it and share it with others. What are you, what are you doing? How are you feeling? Are you feeling better? All of those things.
2: I 2020 has been interesting. Um, It's been a year where I have interesting is such a trite word for (laughs) what 2020 has really been, I suppose, but I have learned a lot about myself and I think probably everyone could say the same from this year. I've had to sit with things that I've never had to sit with before because Everything has slowed down. And this was the year that reminded me that I have not transcended this disease, my mental health, my depression. I had kind of fooled myself for several years, believing that I had, while I had some lows here and there, and I might feel unmotivated every once in a while or burnt out, that I had always sort of numbed myself to the point where. I was either so busy that I didn't focus on anything because I was juggling a job full-time and racing and sponsorship and all of that. Or I was, I was just happy and didn't think about the times when I wasn't. And this, this past year there was no racing. And I mean, there's two, two small, two races that I did all year and they came later in the year. And so I, And I had to work from home. I had never worked from home before. I now work Uh from home full time. And I've had to sit with some things that, like I said, I've never sat with before. So one of them was this lack of connection to people. I actually know that I am an introvert by nature, but I didn't realize how much I valued being around other people. That the natural, go to the cafe in our, our workplace and heat up my breakfast and run into someone and ask about their weekend. or turn around in my desk chair to my coworker and ask her what band she's listening to right now. You know, mm-hmm. something that those little interactions that make you feel like you're part of something, make you feel like you're human, were, are gone now. Mm-hmm. And now it's all planned. It's all, hey, we have a conference call at this time, join yeah. me and we might talk about our weekends, but it's not this serendipitous thing. It's not impromptu. It's it's yep. very much I can take a breath and prepare for it. And I think I didn't realize that I valued that so much. And that connection with my community and my people was gone. And then on top of that, I had found over the past... Year prior, the I would say half year prior to COVID, I had finally found a group of people that I could ride with on the weekends that I just loved spending time with. Uh, And we would go for long adventure rides together and never be further than 10 miles from home, but we'd be in trails we'd never ridden before. And it was so amazing. And then COVID started and everyone was like, we can't, we can't ride together anymore. uh, And then I'd lost that too. And yeah. I had to kind of sit with myself and be like, "Why am I doing this? Why am I racing? Why do I race? What, mm. What's the point? And what do I value? What do I enjoy?" And it, all these questions started popping up. And I re- and then when you start to face that and then not be around other people to even talk through it. Yeah. And I think for me that. The lifestyle I had before was, like I said, it was so busy that I didn't really have to sit and think about it. I would just do, yeah, so I would just go through the motions,
0: yeah, it's interesting. well i'm I'm thinking back to the beginning of the podcast where you talked about liking a hard tail because it for well, and and mountain biking for that matter, because it kind of forced you, you know, you're not on fire roads. You're having to pick lines. You're having to figure out which side of the route you want to ride on and things like that. And so your brain is constantly, diverted i guess from everyday life and now that racing is taken away not necessarily riding but racing yeah. um and other things like you know coworkers and um commutes and all of those different things uh you're kind of like forced to be in your own head and yeah. ultimately is that while difficult but if you look at it as more of a workout than a than a a constant state of being, you know, of like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, it's, and it sounds like you have, you've sort of said, okay, this is, this is the card that I'm, uh, this is the hand that I've been dealt. And now how do I, how do I use my tools that I normally use on a mountain bike or whatever? And how do I get through this and divert my attention to other things, reinventing myself, different, different avenues and things like that. So ultimately, are you looking at this as like a good challenge and maybe a net positive long term?
2: absolutely I for a period of time was racing because of potentially the toxic like I look for winning and I want to be the best and there there wasn't a strong pull behind what it is the the reason why I race right Mm. and I feel like I'm finally finding my place and my purpose Mm. and my voice for a while I felt like well I've always I've always wanted to Be something, be part of something bigger than myself. And whether that came from my time as a Girl Scout or time doing volunteer service work when I was a kid, because that's something my family valued. I don't know. But there's always been a piece of me that felt like just living my life without trying to have a bigger impact on the world wasn't what I wanted. And Mm. I finally feel like I'm getting closer. You know, when you play that game where you hide something and they're like warmer, warmer, (laughs) that's what I feel like it's something is getting warmer that I am gravitating toward the the place I'm supposed to be in. And that Mm. is giving me the power to feel like I have a bigger connection to my community. And, um, For me, everything I do now feels like it's coming closer to this greater alignment. And in my racing too, that I feel like I I initially had this vision that I had to earn my respect in the field, in the industry. And I had to win all these races so people could listen to me. And then I would have a platform to speak from. And now thinking about it, I have the power to, to define my worth. I don't need to wait for someone else to tell me that I'm worthy. And through this advocacy, I've found the voice that I truly believe is worth listening to. And whether it's just me listening to it, I think there's a lot of power in just having myself sit with some of the things that I've learned over this past Mm. several months. And and that voice is helping me find that, that power and that motivation that I'm looking for to be able to connect with people in my community.
0: Do you find that it brings you closer to racing or um, do you find, let me think about how I want to ask you this. So does it motivate you um, to be a better racer in that you will be able to reach more people in order to spread your message, et cetera, or does it sort of consume racing where this becomes more important than racing in some ways?
2: Good question.
0: Like, do you think about it while you're training of like, and I know that there hasn't been a lot of races yet where you've worn these two hats together simultaneously, but have you put the two together in terms of like the, the better you are at racing on your bike, the better, the more, um, audience you're going to be able to reach because, you know, with success, you will be able to reach a, a wider audience. Um, and so is there some sort of, is there like a, do you ever think about that when you're training of like this, this will, this is going to like me getting faster today, me pushing myself to my limit will allow me to help more people.
2: It's a really, really good question. I have thought about this. It's funny that you mentioned it. Cause I've never really shared my thoughts about this, mm. but I have thought a lot about it and my approach has changed. And not because what I think is I will have less of an impact if I don't do as well at racing. I think that could become very unhealthy for me. If I believe that I will only have a good, a significant impact in my sharing my message about mental health advocacy and trying to help break the stigma. If I believe that I will only be able to do that with winning results. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What I believe
2: is that if I work hard, and I share my journey about working hard and being genuine and authentic throughout that journey of, of my pursuit toward athletic success, I will likely, by fine-tuning my ability to manage my mental health, I will likely find success in my, my own way anyway. And that's something I've had to really root in because a lot there's always that sort of toxic approach toward competition. But also, I believe that if I'm genuine and I'm doing my best and I'm happy with doing my best, that is what's going to connect with people because they're going to see Mm -hmm. someone like them, someone like their daughter, like their mother, like their friend. It doesn't even have to be a female. Someone like themselves or someone they know who goes through mental health struggles can still do great things. And great things doesn't have to be the top of a podium. Great things could be Training their tail off to go do their absolute best and lay it all out there on the course for a long mountain bike race or a long trail run or doesn't even have to be a competition to overcome something they didn't think was possible. And I think a lot of people believe that their mental health struggles are holding them back or they might not even believe it. It might just be holding them back because it's something they feel can't be overcome. And if I can help be an example, a role model that can show that I can be in my darkest points and still pull myself out somehow to be able to train and race at this level results don't really mean much anymore.
1: Mm.
2: And I think that's the piece for me. That's really important. And it's the part that I remind myself regularly is just do the best that I can. And by doing so, something great is going to come out of it. And it could be that it's just the message of this is what hard work does for you. Mm. And it, maybe I get to worlds, maybe I don't, but I promise you that journey along the way is going to be a meaningful one for me. And whoever chooses to follow my journey will likely find that I have ups and downs throughout the entire time. Mm. And I'm still finding a way to be, uh, to push myself forward.
0: Well, it makes me very happy to hear you put it that way and articulate it that way. It sounds like a very healthy way of looking at it. And I was, I was worried that um, because of who you've described yourself as being that, that it would be all consuming. And if you, if you didn't podium or if you took second, all of a sudden you're tying that to, I didn't, I didn't do my part as an advocate today, in addition to not doing my part as a, as a racer. And I think the, the, um, the athletes whom I've spoken with, over the years who um or 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 you know watch the documentary on or 30 for 30 or whatever it's the ones who have that kind of secondary identity simultaneous with their primary are the ones who land the softest post yeah. um, you know toward the end of their careers yeah. where they don't hang on too long they don't go through the you know sort of who am i what do i do now this has been my entire identity so i think your yeah. ability to 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 re uh, invent yourself several times and it seems like each time gaining gaining the knowledge and the wisdom um you know so who knows when you when you end this career and start your next career and the advocacy is on top of that you know and you'll yeah. you'll be this long long gray-haired you know wizard um, <laughs> of self-reflection
2: <laughs> perhaps perhaps yeah. and i will say that. Sometimes I often think about how um, potentially getting significant success might actually make me less relatable to people. Mm. And it's not that I don't wish success on my athletic pursuits, Mm. but I was, you, you mentioned 30 for 30. I recently watched the Lance Armstrong documentary. I also watched the, there's a documentary that is primarily focuses around. Michael Phelps and his journey uh, called The Weight of Gold. Mm. And it's like Michael Phelps, uh, Paulo Ono, there's a bunch of other Olympians. It oh, interesting. About. I need to check and that out. Yeah, it's, it's really good. I'll start with that. It's really good. It's about their own mental health journeys and the depression associated with this buildup to the Olympic moment. And success and then what happens after or the olympic moment and failure and what happens after and the lack of support because mental health is not something people talk about and it's it's a commentary on the need to bring this this stigma to an end
1: mm.
2: and they these olympians have really put themselves in a very vulnerable position by being interviewed talking about their own struggles and it's really powerful I will also say I watched it as someone who's not an Olympian and somewhat felt like, well, I'm not an Olympian and I didn't go through this. So does that mean my journey isn't justified? Mm. And because I didn't achieve the success they did, does that mean that I'm not worthy of feeling the way that I do? And it doesn't mean I'm broken because I'm not the the kind of athlete that they are. And the message that I want to convey to people who follow me or maybe not, but just people in my network that you don't have to be an Olympic athlete. You don't have to be a successful athlete. You don't have to be a competitor at all to go through mental health struggles and it be justified. There's sometimes you can't control it. And Uh it's not something where, well, it's okay because you went to the Olympics and then now you're going through a low point because it's post Olympics or it's okay because you had a baby and now you're, you're having, you know, postpartum depression. Those are all very real and very justified scenarios, but it's also okay if you wake up in the morning and you feel depressed and sad and there is no explanation for it. And it's okay if you're a normal, you know, person who just goes to work and feels depressed. And I think that message is a little bit lost. Obviously it's not the intent of that video, that that um, documentary, yeah. but it felt like there was a gap there because every one of their stories that they share is Olympians and I, I don't, yeah. it's not just Olympians who struggle and that's What's, the piece that want, I wanna be relatable. I,
0: I love what you just said, where that doesn't, just because you don't have seven gold medals hanging around your neck makes you no less worthy of compassion and empathy from other people and people reaching out like your old roommate who, you know, literally dragged you out whether you knew yeah. it or not <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and, and yeah. took you on this journey. Yeah. Um, I hate to end on a down note, but uh, there's a question that I I keep like, you'll say something, it'll come to my mind and I, I keep forgetting <laughs> to ask it, but are you, um, you, you clearly know that training helps you get out of these funks yeah. Do, like, how many times, like, is it an often thing where you can't overcome that, where you're just, I'm in bed and I'm not going to get out of bed to train and do the things that I know will help me?
2: I have probably, a, I'm extreme in everything that I do. So oh. I'll say that my form of depression is very functional. I don't, mm. I have never never is not a good word, very rarely have I had the scenario where I have not been able to get out of bed. Now I know that is not the case for a lot of people. And I've been, we we talked about it. I've I've been in very dark places where it's. I've had suicidal ideation without without also feeling like I can't pull myself out of bed. So there's definitely a spectrum. Um, Training typically, there have been days where I'm unmotivated enough where I can't get out of bed early in the morning to stick to my routine. Mm. And I usually work out early morning because it gives me structure in my day. And then I feel accomplished to start the day. And that is something I've struggled with. And then that becomes more my routine where I can't wake up early. And then I mess up the rest of my day and it actually magnifies the issue. But typically somehow I can get myself moving. And I would say, Every time that I've done it, every time that I've I've thought to myself, I can't. I just can't do this anymore. I just can't work out. I've and sometimes Joe has had to like pull me off the bed, so I'll be like kind of leaning on it, thinking, I guess I should get dressed. And Joe will actually pull me and be like, Okay, time, <laughs> time to go. Time uh, to time to work out. And I'm glad I have that companion. Yeah. But I would say it's never been so extreme okay. as you describe it. Yeah.
0: Okay, good. Well, any, um, I mean, you've you've imparted a thousand <laughs> grains of wisdom and, and parting wishes and things like that. Any, any parting thoughts, comments, or anything you'd like to share?
2: The only thing I'd say is a message that I shared in my blog post that you've referenced a couple of times, which is I encourage everyone to start talking about the difficult things that make you squirm, about the things that your family didn't talk about because people get uncomfortable or just because they never have talked about it before. I, It, it will free you It to give voice to things that you're feeling, even if it feels like you're not worthy of feeling the way that you do or that it, you feel like something's wrong with you or you're embarrassed, depression, anxiety, mental health struggles in general, they thrive in shame. And if you can start talking about it, it gives you the freedom to get something off your chest. Or if you are someone who's not struggling, but you see someone who's struggling and you reach out to them, give them the space to talk. It's just, it makes a huge difference. It it will 100% make a positive change. And I found it in my own personal life, talking with family members that I've never talked about my depression with before. And I actually have stronger relationships with people now where I, they were strong before, but now they feel very genuine and very real and very open. And yeah, my, my message would be start the conversation and it will be awkward. Just seize that awkwardness and embrace it. Because it becomes less awkward and more genuine and and positive. And it's a good space to give people the freedom to talk about things that are often shameful and hidden and invisible.
0: Well said. These are your words, so I'm going to make you a t-shirt. It's going to say, Team Team Calcat, don't thrive in shame, don't suffer in silence.
2: Ooh, that's good. Wait, did I write that in the blog post?
0: No, you just said it.
2: Oh, oh, I was like, I don't remember writing that, but I like it. Yes. Yeah.
0: Don't thrive in shame. Don't suffer in silence.
2: I like that a lot.
0: There you go. Kelly, <laughs> thank you. Nothing thank but you. gratitude. Really. Thank you so much for, um, for doing this. Um, I know that some of these things were um, somewhat difficult to talk about, but I think you're getting gaining strength and energy from talking about them. So, um, you know, I hope, I hope everybody listening um, enjoyed this and appreciated this. Again, these are always difficult for me from my side. I don't ever want this to come off as exploitive in any way. So this was just about um, hopefully nothing but helping people. And uh, And I think that you did a great job of articulating yourself and the things that you've been through. And hopefully we can take the conversation from here. I'd love to have you. Back on the show at one point, certainly after next unpaved next year or yeah. some other race, as they start coming back and you start kicking ass all around the country and on your <laughs> road you. to uh, on the road to your world championship.
2: Yes, thank you, thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure, and I always encourage people to reach out if they ever need someone to talk to or share their story. I yeah. might not respond right away because I'm terrible at responding, but I read every single message that comes my way.
0: So we'll have the um, links to your um, your blog and and all that in the show notes. Do you want to throw out the the URL or any any social handles or anything that you want people to find you at?
2: Well, my website, where my blog and other info about me and whatnot it will, uh, and I will be selling socks, which is oh like nice, a super exciting thing. I do Workout Sock Wednesday, which is something that's been my trademark. I'm not even really sure how it came to be, but. <laughs> Everyone knows me as the girl with the crazy socks on Wednesdays, and that will all be on my website. It's KellyCatali.com. Super easy.
0: Okay. Spell it.
2: K e l l y, C a t a l e, dot com. Perfect. And awesome. My Instagram is at Kelly.Catali. Super easy. Much easier. Thank you so much for having me. It really means a lot that you've made the space to have my message shared with your followers. And I look forward to connecting with new people.
0: Oh, the pleasure was mine. Uh, Really, thank you for coming on. I can't wait to follow your career um, as you progress through and over all of these obstacles and uh, hopefully stand on a podium one day at the World Championship and that is the show so hope you enjoyed it more people racing more often having more fun in the process is our mission a very very special thanks to kelly Katali for sharing her story and helping to change the narrative uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast we want to hear from you so leave comments on your on our socials we are at Athlinks across the board or shoot us an email to podcast at Athlinks.com. share it with friends far and wide give us a review if you dig it and until next time happy racing everybody
1: We did it. Sweet.